Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Brian is joined by Allidade's very own Sean Cavanaugh, Chief Policy and Chief Commercial Officer, Travis Broom, Senior Vice President for Policy and Economics, and Casey Corba, Director of Policy. These policy experts provide a broad overview of Healthcare Valley Week at the end of January, but also go on to discuss CMS's recent changes to the direct contracting program now known as ACO Reach. Hi, and welcome back to the ACO Show. I'm Brian Chaglinski, Allidade's Senior Director of Communications and Content, and today we're bringing you a podcast that's packed with policy. Today I'll be joined by three of Allidade's all-star policy experts, Casey Corba, Allidade's Director of Policy, Travis Broom, our Senior VP for Policy and Economics, and Sean Cavanaugh, our Chief Policy Officer and Chief Commercial Officer. Originally, we had planned for this conversation to focus solely on a recap of Healthcare Value Week that happened at the end of January, but we started to get indications that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, was getting close to a decision on the new value-based care program, direct contracting. Sure enough, last week, CMS announced its changes to what we are lovingly calling DC, changing the name to ACO Reach. Travis, I know you have some thoughts there, and making some real substantive changes to the program. So today, in just a quick half hour, we're going to try to touch on all of those. For those of you who want to go deeper on any of these pieces, visit Allidade's website and follow Travis Broom on Twitter. So let's get started. Sean, you had the chance to sit down with Dr. Amina Seshmani, an old colleague of ours who's now holding your old position running Medicare. And she had an interesting point on the growth of the Medicare Shared Savings Program and how it relates to Medicare's goal for 2030. What did she say that stuck with you? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, she said a couple things. Well, first, to give some context, the agency through a blog earlier a couple months ago had set a goal for itself of getting all Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries in what they called an accountable relationship by 2030. And by accountable relationship, they mean things like ACOs, but left it broad enough that you know future models could apply as well. And during our discussion, she announced how much the Medicare Shared Savings Program had grown from 2021 to 2022, and it was by several hundred thousand lives, which is good. Any growth is progress. But when we put it in the context of the goal the agency had set for itself of getting all the Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable relationship by 2030, actually puts them behind the pace they need to be on by their own standards. So it was great chatting with Mina and to hear the agency once again reaffirm its commitment to ACOs, to applaud the success of ACOs, to applaud the growth of ACOs. But one of the things you know we pushed Mina on is great, but we need a, we need something to accelerate this. If we're going to meet your goals and make sure everybody in the Medicare program has access to the better care and lower costs that ACOs are providing. We need some policy proposals that'll spark that change. First of all, like what was her response? And, and did you bring up any specific recommendations that, that we've been pushing to try and encourage enrollment in value-based care? Yeah, we've been talking about a three-pronged strategy with CMS, both in Value Week, but through other channels. One is just use the bully pulpit of CMS. You know, people listen very carefully to what the administrator and what others at CMS say and are trying to read the tea leaves of where the program's heading. So we encourage them to be as forthright publicly as they have been with us privately, which is they're really excited about the ACO program. They think people are getting better care and that's great from their perspective. So we've said, you know, sing that from the rooftops, publish data. You know, our data shows that Medicare beneficiaries and ACOs are getting like 35% more primary care. So 35% more of the good stuff. 
And it's demonstrably leading to less of the bad stuff, unnecessary hospitalizations and ED visits. You know, we can go around saying it, but it's not as powerful as when CMS is. So that's step one, communication. Be very forthful about it. Step two, get the payment incentives right. I mean, this program today, the benchmarking and everything else is very different than it was when the program first launched in 2012. And that's because the agency and those of us on the outside who are participating in the program have learned a lot about how to do this. And there's more steps to take. There's something we call the rural glitch, where when ACOs uh, reduce costs, they're actually bringing their own benchmarks down. You know, that's not an incentive anybody likes. They could fix that. And there's some other suggestions we've made. And then the last bucket we said is use MSSP as a chassis for testing other things. So people often think of the innovation center as where you test cool new things and MSSP is the statutory program, but you can marry those two ideas. If they wanna test primary care capitation, do that within MSSP ACOs. If you wanna test beneficiary incentives, test that within ACOs. We think that's a three-pronged strategy that if they adopted wholeheartedly, you'd see real growth in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Yeah, and I know our, our team is, uh, for those of you who might want to dive in a little deeper on that idea of MSSP as a chassis, there's a piece in health affairs uh, that the team pulled together to kind of start that conversation on what that would actually look like, how the mechanics of that would work, and some recommendations going forward. So that was great. Casey, uh, you also did some writing of your, of your own that's up on the website now. There's a great recap of Healthcare Value Week that really dives into all of the details around the conversations you were hearing. So uh, we don't have all the time in this podcast to jump into those details, but um, I know you had mentioned that in particular, you'd heard a lot of praise for CMS around data in particular. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what you heard and, and what you think that means for the value-based care movement? Yeah. So I, I think during Value Week, there were a lot of opportunities for panelists to talk about both sort of the drivers of value-based care, as well as the, the challenges and barriers. And, you know, data is one of those topics that certainly crosses over both of those categories. You know, there were a few sessions where panelists discussed sort of this vast gap between the kinds of data they get from CMS and the data they get from, you know, their health plan partners. And, you know, often what they said was the data from CMS is, is very timely, it's actionable, and really enables them to drill down on where they need to improve, you know, patient outreach and, you know, getting to those better patient outcomes. And the, sort of the data legs that they see in the commercial market can make it harder to act quickly and to pivot, you know, where they need to go. So really just conversations about the full transparency and total cost of care, more standards around data and, and how the data flows in, you know, in the coming months and years, I think is really, is really what they're looking for. And I think it's just an example of that sort of MSSP as sort of a foundation for innovation, you know, just how the data flows is, is definitely something where we can take those learnings. Yeah, that's a really great point. We always talk about, and I think we hear from practices all the time about how vital, timely, and like actionable data is. And so having a partner at CMS that's able to meet some of those needs and, and make that possible is really, really essential to making sure that we're making progress on these models and, and helping practices thrive in them. I guess if we pull back out 30,000 foot view, you know, this conference is coming on the heels of a really busy decade of progress in value-based care models, both on the policy side, but also, you know, on the industry side and, and folks that are experimenting and trying new things. Casey, if you had to kind of get a sense of how 
both folks on the policy side and the industry are are looking at this past decade and what comes ahead. Like, I'm, I realize this is asking a, a lot for us to summarize in, in a quick soundbite, but kind of what was the what was the mood? What were the the main things that that folks were saying about where we've come from and where we're going? Yeah, I think one of the things that really stuck with me was from the panel on sort of the the future of primary care and value based care, and actually Farzad really talking about the inevitability of value-based care and how that was going to be such a big driver. He talked about his experience, you know, with moving electronic health records and and sort of showing everyone that was going to be inevitable. There's no going back. There's no kind of plan B. And I think, you know, where we are in value-based care is very similar. I think the administration is really showing people that it's time to get in accountable care models by 2030 and the the goal of having 100% of organizations you know in these models by 2030 just is kind of telling people it is inevitable and when i think organizations and people can move toward a common goal like that i think that's where we'll continue to see a lot of the incentives to get into these models and to prepare for the shift and and you know i think macro was a huge you know signal in 2015 that you need to start investing in the infrastructure and the data analytics and the resources to make sure you can do good care coordination, be able to better follow patients from different sites of care and different points of care, different you know parts of their care journey. And that's really what value-based care is leading us to. And this sense of inevitability, I think, is, is very exciting. It was great, the, the timing of these, to have folks talking about the inevitability of the movement to value-based care, to you know, be talking about these really ambitious growth goals, like Sean mentioned, for having folks in, in these value-based kind of arrangements. And then literally to you know, fast forward about a month later, and CMS really takes some very concrete steps in putting out some new changes to what was known as the direct contracting program. So Travis, pivoting a little bit to that decision on DC, could you summarize a little bit for us about what CMS actually substantively changed in the program that was formerly known as direct contracting? Yeah, that program formerly known as direct contracting, now ACO Reach. Don't let the names fool you, right? DCEs were always ACOs, right? So this was always an, an ACO innovation program. And really what they updated three big areas, I would say. One is governance. So one of the ways MSSP and direct contracting differ, but now REACH and MSSP are alike, is who governs the ACO. Direct contracting, you only had to have 25%, had to be, you know, the healthcare providers, physicians, or, you know, executives of healthcare service delivery groups, the participants basically of the ACO that make up the ACO, only 25% of the people making up the ACO had to be on the governance in direct contracting. It's always been 75% in Medicare and now it's 75% in ACO reach, right? So that was bucket number one, who's in charge basically um, changed. Number two was a focus and, and the administration has been pushing this since day one on health equity. You know, for the first time, a program is acknowledging health equity at its very core. And, you know, I kind of dabble as a health economist here. So for me, the very core means the benchmarking methodology, right? The money, the, the underlying money 
is now taking into account health equity. You can earn a health equity bonus to your benchmark. So that is, is great to finally see that line cross. We've been talking about health equity all the time. It's really great to see it finally come to like the core finances of a program. The third were, you know, bucket is kind of more technical changes to the program, right? So, you know, the discount was 5%. They lowered it to 3.5%. 5% was really high. They changed some of the risk methodology where CMS in direct contracting and in, in ACR reach the program, the taxpayer was always protected against coding intensity, right? This phenomenon, if you just pay more attention to risk codes, they naturally go up. But there was a problem in direct contracting where millions of dollars could potentially shift from one ACO to the other. Now they kind of took most of that shifting out. So you know, if you're an ACO looking to join the program, you're, you're definitely looking over your shoulder a lot less, right? As it were, and you're not as scared about that discount in the later years getting so high. So really it's, they, they updated the governance to kind of put the people who make up the ACO in charge of the ACO. They brought health equity to the benchmarks. And then they made some technical tweaks that kind of make it a little more agreeable, I guess, to a wider range of participants than it was when it was direct contract. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Pulling back a little bit, like you know, one thing that you said uh, before that was really interesting is like that this next phase of value-based care is, is, as you put it, making sure the arrows are pointed in the right direction. You know, specifically, you were talking about primary care and equity in those arrows, how do you think this decision and these changes made by CMS, you know, adjust those arrows? Are they pointing in the right direction now, or, or you know, how, how do we how do we look at that in this next phase of ACO reach? Yeah, it's it's you know this arrow in the right direction thing. You know, Sean was talking earlier in podcast about how communication is so important and it really is so important, but the details really really matter too. You know, like we talked about on previous part in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. There's, you know, the arrows pointing slightly in the wrong direction away from counties in the country that are getting sicker and older. And we want to turn that arrow the other way. I think by and large, you know, the health equity bonus obviously puts a big, bold arrow in the right direction. But then there's also a little bit of a concern too. It's like one of those things of like, you got to run down every little detail as the quality measures in the program are all risk adjusted kind of hospitalization measures. And we know from our experience at Allidade that risk adjustment does not account for enough for our, say, our community health centers and urban centers to do as well on risk-adjusted hospitalization members as our private practices in wealthy suburbs do, right? And there's a quality withhold. Like they kind of, if you don't do as best as possible on quality, they take a little bit of benchmark back. So to some extent, there's a little bit of, we're going to give you a health equity bonus, but we didn't think about the quality measure effect. So we'll probably end up taking a little bit of that bonus away. So I think, again, the benchmarking was a huge, big arrow and line crossed in a way that hasn't been crossed before. And again, it can't be underestimated, but to your point about the arrows, like you got to run down every one of those suckers and every detail to make sure they're all pointing in the right direction. Yeah, that's funny because we always, we turn to Travis right away for the rapid analysis of these programs, but so much of it is very much in the weeds and the details and how those details filter down 
to practices who are actually doing this work on the grounds. So yeah, rest assured, uh, this is something that I'm sure uh, the policy team will be providing some more analysis and assessments of as we go. I guess one last thing on ACO reach, and then uh, I might open it up for one more question for you guys. If you're a practice now, we have a lot of practices across the country who are hearing from folks showing up at their door saying, join direct contracting now, ACO reach, and you know we'll serve as a direct contracting entity for you. You know, they're, I think they're hearing a lot of things and it's hard to sift through all the noise to make sense of like, all right, when is direct contracting generally a good bet for my organization? When is it not? How do I tell the difference uh, between some of these wild claims that are showing up at my practice's front doors? What, what would you say to them, to those practices now? I'll go first, and then I'd be really interested in Travis's interpretation too. There are a lot of differences between the two programs, between the Medicare Shared Savings Program and the REACH program. But at the end of the day, neither of them works and neither of them is worth pursuing unless beneficiaries get better care at lower cost. So I would, my sort of headline, not warning, but headline reminder is you're going to have to do things differently. Now, that, that, that's certainly not a warning because I think the models give you an ability to do different things and incentives. They're going to reward you for providing better care at lower cost. But no program is sustainable if someone's promising you free money, like we're just going to pay you more. And I think we've seen some of that out in the field. If someone's just promising you free money, you may get it for a year or two, but it's not a sustainable business model. If someone's promising you strategies to improve the care for your beneficiaries, to generate savings for the Medicare program, some of which will then be shared with you, that seems plausible. There's a business case there. And then it's just, is this the right partner for me? Are the tools right? Are the incentives right? Does it culturally feel good? But there is, there is no free money, sadly enough. I'm sure Travis has more to add to that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll pick up on the tools point. And you know, if if you are successfully, you know, providing better essentially health um, to beneficiaries and therefore lower cost, and you have established relationships with Medicare patients, primary care relationships with Medicare patients already, on a total cost of care kind of end of the year reconciliation basis our modeling suggests that you kind of make more and that you'll capture more of that lower cost in, in MSSP than you will in REACH. What REACH has that MSSP doesn't have today, you referenced our health affairs article earlier and hopefully we'll have in the future, but today what it doesn't have is it doesn't have some of the tools that could potentially help you in creating that greater amount of health. The biggest one is primary care capitation. And more importantly, like not just primary care capitation of your evaluation and management, but an enhanced rate. You know, CMS is essentially going to advance you up to 2% of savings, maybe even a little more than 2% of savings in some case, but we'll just call it 2%, right? You're going to advance 2% of savings to the ACO in the enhanced part of the primary care cap. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to invest it? It's essentially a no interest loan. End of the year, reconcile, they're going to want it back. Don't, you know, they, and again, to Sean's point, there's no such thing as free money, right? So like at the ACO level, CMS is going to want it back at the end of the year, even if your ACO doesn't ask it back from you as a practice, CMS is certainly going to ask the ACO for it back. But what do you, what do you have? What, what, what are you going to do with it? What, what do you think you're going to, how are you going to invest it? There's a lot of waivers particularly around home visits, you know, getting kind of pivoting off the Medicare Advantage place. 
where you could send your MA to a practice or to a home to say a transitional care management. So I think everything else being equal, if you have established primary care relationships, you've been seeing Medicare patients for years, you're probably better off in MSSP. The way things might get a little unequal when you think about REACH is REACH does have these greater tools. Makes a lot of sense. I think that that general sense of these models work because they're providing better care and therefore generating savings from that better care, I think is the key thing to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, and this is something we talk all the time about at Allidate, it's not about more or less care. It's about, it's about providing better care and making sure that you're helping provide the care that lowers costs in the out years and, and in the longer term, the care that a lot of these practices are providing every day, but just haven't been rewarded for it the way that these new value-based care models allow. One last question, I think, just for all of you guys, you know, I think when we talk to a lot of practices across the country, it can seem sometimes, you know, there's a lot of noise around healthcare reform and value-based care and, and uh, these different models and the debates between them and, you know, what one administration will pursue and the other will and, and all of, you know, the discussions going on in Washington. But I think it's rather that question of, you know, what does this mean for my practice? And we've come out at the end of, you know, of a couple months that have seen some, some big, you know, momentum for value-based care, both in the words that folks at CMS and, and on the Hill are are providing in support for this movement to value-based care, but also in the actions and the reforming programs like direct contracting to make them you know, function a, a lot more differently. What would you say to a practice who's trying to make sense of what, is, what does this all mean? What is the, the words and the actions? What does that mean for my practice? How should I think about this in the broader movement to value-based care looking forward? To me, if you, I, I wish people would stitch it together for you, but if they don't, I'll, I'll try, which is we, meaning the government, have provided a pathway for independent physicians to stay independent and make 30, 40, 50% more money than they make today. And, and they should be singing that from the rooftops. And as I said, we've encouraged folks to do that. I think they've been very supportive of the MSSP, but haven't really shouted what it means for the independent physician. Brian, as you pointed out, I was at Medicare and if I had realized I had, you know, my hand on the tiller of something that could drive more practices to remain independent and not just get by, but to thrive, I, I would have been ecstatic. You know, I had been working on trying to get the fee schedule to be better. And, you know, and we've made some improvements, but it's a long, slow slog. And those improvements can be, you know, eaten away over time. But for independent practices, if you get with the right partners and you do the work in a way that you've always wanted to do, it's not asking you to do something that's incompatible. There's really a pathway here. And I think that's the message that I hope is coming through. You know, sometimes it gets lost in the confusion of this model or that, but the bottom line is there is a permanent program that provides this pathway. It's got a 10 year history now, it's been successful. It's got bipartisan support, it's growing. Like all, all those arrows that Travis was talking about are pointing in the right direction. And we at Allidate are continuing to work to try to make sure policymakers keep refining it and keep making it better over time. Because it, it, it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty darn good. Well, I can kind of flip that a little. And I, I think for me, one of the things that came out of Value Week that was so kind of inspiring and, and really made me think was that we we need to do a better job of 
not only showing you know, the value to practices, which is so important, but also the value to patients and beneficiaries of, of value-based care. And I think that is something that this administration is more focused on. And you know, I, I think I'm very excited by sort of some of the, the refresh and the renewed focus around value-based insurance design, you know, making it making it very clear that the patient, you know, doesn't have to pay copays and, and other fees for really recommended evidence-based care that they should be getting from their primary care doctor. And also, you know, obviously the big focus on equity and just really trying to get better about meeting patients where they are, I think will really translate to the patient that they are getting better care through value-based care. And I think that will continue to be a focus, you know, in the coming months. I'll close just by saying like, it's where the opportunity is. Just paying back off of both conversations, like fee-for-service, just doing fee-for-service, billing code X, Y, and Z out of the CPT code book has run its course, right? Like that's where we know where that ends up. Fee-for-service rates are, you know, if you're lucky, they will keep up with inflation in the future, but they're never going to exceed fee-for-service. There's no opportunity in, in fee-for-service anymore. At best, it keeps your lights on. So all the opportunity to do better by patients, to do better by practice financially, all of the opportunity is in this shift to value-based care. Yeah, Travis, that uh, idea of the opportunity uh, of this is, I think, huge and, and ties into some stuff that Sean was talking about earlier. Do you want to like double down on like how big is the opportunity we're talking about here? Yeah, as Sean mentioned, we're looking you know, 3 million more beneficiaries. So there's 11 million right now in MSSP. We want to get to everybody. We need like by 2030, we need like 3 million more a year. So like 30% growth a year, right? And that doesn't even count Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage at the plan level, obviously it's been moved, but you know, the people actually delivering healthcare, you know, might just be pure fee for service. There's lots of pure fee for service in Medicare Advantage still. So I think this is really a call to action, frankly, of if you're not already participating in these models, this is really your opportunity. And we know that there's lots of people who aren't because there's tens of millions of Medicare beneficiaries who are not benefiting from these models. So this is really the time, right? We have MSSP, it's 10 years old. It's proven, it's saving money. It's not going anywhere. We're still learning. We're still refining in ACO reach. Medicare Advantage, we're doing more dealers here Allidade every year. Um, and our Medicare Advantage population is growing. Like you are not a first mover, but it's, 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 at this point, you don't have those risks. But at the same token, it's definitely time to move. Sean, Casey, Travis, I think, first of all, a huge amount of credit for covering such a, a uh, packed list of content for us in, in such a short time. Um, but this was really great conversation. And I think really gives our audience a lot to think about in, in terms of the exciting things that are coming down the pike for the value-based care movement. So appreciate you all taking the time today and we'll look forward to getting you guys back on the show sometime soon. This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Prieti, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. Our theme music is by Greg Berry. You can find previous episodes on our website, alliday.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.